0: You know, sometimes life throws crazy situations at you where you're trying to figure out what to do, and wouldn't it be nice to just have some, like, machine that just tells you exactly what the right next step is? Well, guess what? There is one. Check it out.
1: If you're still struggling with life in the real world, you're going to love our latest home speaker device. Hey, Dad, what kind of pliers should I use
2: on this? Uh, You should be using a wrench. Oh, do I have a wrench? You have three.
1: Ah, thanks Dad. Introducing the Dad Personal Assistant, our newest smart speaker with all the character and compassion of a father.
2: Up and at him. It's a beautiful day.
1: Dad, it's Saturday. Yeah,
2: it's a great day to get outside. It's
1: 6 a.m.
2: Well, then you better get moving before it gets any later.
1: Designed with advanced features, the Dad PA connects to all your other smart home devices. Dad, please set the thermostat to 70 degrees.
2: No problem. Setting the thermostat to 68 degrees. Um, no, let's keep it at 70 degrees. Sure thing. Thanks, Dad. We're gonna save so much money.
1: He syncs with your calendar to help you stay on track.
2: Looks like you're overdue for an oil change. Oh, hey, you're right. Can you schedule one for Friday? I've already got it scheduled. Just don't miss it, okay?
1: (laughs) Okay. I won't.
2: (laughs) Seriously, don't miss it.
1: The dad PA is always watching out for you.
2: Lights on. Uh, Hey, it's getting late. I think it's about time for Brad to head home. uh,
1: Dad! The dad personal assistant includes a wealth of knowledge and opinions on a wide variety of subjects. Dad, can you help me with my taxes? Dad, do you know a good mechanic?
2: Hey, Dad, can you tell me a joke? Sure. The joke is one billion dollars.
1: Yeah, I don't get
2: it. That's right. And you never will.
1: Ah. Uh. Nice one. (laughs) I'm hilarious. Based on God's original design, the dad personal assistant is wise, caring, faithful, and devoted.
2: Don't worry. You've got this. You are the strongest person I know. You have made me so proud. You are God's child, and you don't need anyone else to complete you. Especially not Brad. (sighs) Really, Dad? I'm just saying, there's other fish in the sea.
1: Okay, wow. The Dad Personal Assistant. Always thoughtful, always dependable, and always there for you.
0: Obviously, that's not actually a thing. Um, <laughs> but we do have dads and father figures in our world who do give wonderful advice and encouragement. It's one of the many things that dads do. So I want to say thank you to the fathers for doing that and for, for being dads. I know for many today, today is a, a wonderful day to, to give thanks in that way. For some, and it was mentioned in a prayer request, um, today may be a day where there's sadness because you're not able to say thank you to that dad. And for some, this may be a day that's challenging because maybe you never had that good father relationship. And wherever you may be on that spectrum on this Father's Day, our lesson today actually directs us to the fact that we have a, a perfect heavenly father who loves us, who is patient, who, ha- is, who has that, that fantastic character that is dependable and who does really speak into our lives what we need to hear about ourselves and also gives us wisdom for those, those challenging moments. And today's lesson is going to take us to a, a very challenging moment. And as, as it does so, it can challenge us, but in a good way, to help us reconsider kind of how we look at life and, and how we approach many situations. Today we're going to hear from our Heavenly Father by looking at His Word and in, in doing so, have Him calibrate our compass for life. The lesson we have, it is Genesis chapter 29, verses 26 to 28. Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also. In return for another seven years of work, and Jacob did so. he finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Now it's helpful to see our lesson within the bigger context of God's story. So we're going to do a quick overview again, to just so we can put it in the right spot in our minds of what's going on here. So as we think about this lesson, you got to have in your mind, starting with the fact that God created humanity and he created Adam and Eve. And he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply in this world. Have a vibrant, good life in this world. Take hold of this world and flourish. And he gave them the ability to do that. They simply needed to trust him to give them life and trust him to direct their life. We know, however, that they did not trust God. There was that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what happened was Adam or Eve looked and she saw fruit that looked good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And we've talked about this recently, but this is such a key thing to keep in mind, that they saw something that looked good to them and then... Acted based on what looked good to their eyes rather than what God said was good. Trusting one's own understanding of what's good is what broke this world, and it continues to break this world and continues to be at the core of so many issues. And it's going to show up in our lesson today, too. So, Adam and Eve, they trust their own eyes instead of God's eyes, instead of what God has said. It breaks the world. There's now separation between humanity and God because there's distrust there and and because now people have turned and gone their own direction. There's now issues between people. There's now suffering when it comes to childbearing and so on. There's suffering when it comes to work. The world has become broken. But in the midst of all that, God made a promise that there would be an offspring of the woman and there would be this battle between a specific offspring of the woman and the serpent the enemy, and that that offspring would crush the head of the enemy. There would be someone born into this world who would conquer everything that makes this world broken. Well, as you move forward into the story of the Bible, into the accounts of the Bible, we get to this man, Abraham, who was kind of the main character in our lesson last week that Pastor Peterson shared with us. And Abraham was an example of someone who trusted God in so many ways, and yet when it came to going to Egypt and he was afraid He took things into his own hands, like we so often do. But it was this flawed man that God said, I'm going to take and turn you into a great nation. That I'm going to take and through your descendants, all the people on the earth will be blessed. And so then God took Abraham and God eventually, actually like 25 plus years after he made that promise to Abraham, finally gave him his son, Isaac. And so then here's a descendant. Isaac wasn't the promised one, but he's the next in line of the promised one. Isaac grows up then to have twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And right away, even as they are coming out of the womb, we're told that there is like a striving between his two sons, Jacob and Esau. And where this really meets its kind of big point is there gets to a point in time where Isaac is looking to bless his oldest son, the one that came out first, Esau, but then Jacob and his mother plot a way for Jacob to steal the blessing. You know, and apparently, and maybe you recall this, this, this whole story, it's so interesting that Esau was such a hairy man that Jacob, like when they slaughtered an animal and they put animal fur on him, that would deceive his father. Like how hairy was Esau? Like really. So he puts, you know, gets a hair on him and, and they cook food like Esau would do it. They bring it to Isaac, and Isaac blesses Esau, excuse me, blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And when Esau comes back and discovers this, he is so angry at his brother that he talks about it and he plots to kill his brother. He wants him dead. And so Jacob leaves for fear of his life. But then he leaves to go to some family that is a bit of a ways away, but is still within their family, partly before safety, but then also thinking that at that point he can go and uh, at that time they wanted to marry still somewhat within your own family uh, in order to, provo- uh, to continue family lines and so on. And so he goes off and he goes and meets his uncle Laban and he begins working for his Uncle Laban. And after a while, his Uncle Laban asks, well, what kind of wages do you want? And at this point, Jacob goes, ah, you have two daughters. One Leah, the other one um, other one Rachel. And our background lesson said Leah had weak eyes. Apparently, that's a like polite way of saying she was not all that cute. And what exactly that means, specific, I don't know. It's just a way of saying, not all that cute but then apparently her sister was pretty fine and so he says alright I'll work for you seven years and then I can, can marry, marry your daughter. He's like alright that sounds good and so Jacob goes ahead, works for the seven years we get to the end of the seven years they have the wedding and there's the wedding feast that night they go and to do the things that a new couple do But apparently he never sees her face the whole time. And he wakes up the next morning and discovers that he had married Leah, not the woman he had been working for. And it's at this point in the lesson, or in the story, that we get to our lesson today, where we can look at some pretty interesting decisions that have been made. And as we ponder these, may God send his spirit to calibrate our compass. In our lesson, when Jacob said, hey, what's the deal? I worked for, I worked for a younger daughter. I, I worked for Rachel. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. And I gave the more literal translation. In, in, in the original language, it literally says, it's not done in our place. And I I gave that literal translation, not because custom is bad or, or wrong, but I don't know if we often use the term, well, it's not the custom here in Wisconsin to do this. But we do talk about, well, this is just what people do. Like, right, this is normal today. This is our world, right? And so Laban says his justification at this point was, people don't give the younger daughter first. They give the older daughter. If you are a note taker, this is the time to get your worship folder out. And in your worship folder you'll see this little compass question mark with some lines. And we're gonna identify three things, there were likely more than three, but three things that were really guiding some of the decision-making here. And the first one that we see here from Laban is his current cultural norm, or maybe to phrase it for ourselves, What often directs our decision making? It's our current cultural norm. What is typically done here? What are people usually doing today? The current cultural norm can really affect the decisions that we make. Now, this is the thing that Laban said to Jacob. I don't know about you, but as I read this, it feels kind of like an excuse. I don't don't know if it hits you that way. But it just kind of does for me. Like, I feel like if I was Jacob, I'd be like, really? Like, that's the reason? So it makes you wonder, as we think about calibrating our compass, if there's something else going on here. And perhaps that something else going on could be what I noted about Leah, how Leah had weak eyes. Could it be, and we're just right now pondering, so we can't say this with certainty, but could it be that Laban saw his daughter Leah and realized maybe, like maybe she just wasn't not quite as cute as her sister? Like I don't know. Like maybe he realized, I this is really terrible to say, right? But maybe she, he didn't think that she was very desirable to a lot of guys. And maybe as a concerned father, he was like, this is the way I'm going to make sure Leah is taken care of. Maybe. Because especially in that world, how do, you, how do you have property? How do you have money? It's through your husband. So it could be that he was like, I don't know which guy's going to come and ask for her. It could be that he was actually just trying to fix a situation that he thought was wrong for his daughter. Just our second thing that often guides us is a misguided desire to fix things. Maybe he justified in his own mind, I'm going to deceive Jacob, and I'm okay with that, in order to provide for Leah. Sometimes we can have something and we're like, all right, I want to fix this, I want to help this. And so we justify our actions based on the good we're we're trying to do. As we think about our compass, we need to recognize that Sometimes we are are influenced by our current cultural norms. Sometimes we are misguided. We have our misguided desires to fix things. We need to recognize these when we think about our compass with life. But then as we think about what happened here, it's not just the choice that Laban made. It's also this now exchange between Laban and Jacob. Laban said, finish this daughter's bridal week. So a typical wedding celebration would be a week long. I mean, those people knew how to party, right? Um, just, just like to recognize that. Like, and we just get things so fast, like a week-long celebration. This was a normal. Finish the week, and then we will give you the younger one also. So Laban's proposed solution to Jacob is, well, marry both. Interesting solution. In return for another seven years of work. And what are we told about Jacob? What did Jacob do? Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Now, I don't know about you, I mean, I suppose there could be a level of, uh, boy, that's romantic. Jacob was willing to work 14 years for Leah. Or not really, excuse me, Rachel. And at the same time, Jacob here takes two wives. That's not a good thing. We're going to lay it out in a moment. But at this point, that's just ask. So what, what prompted Jacob to just say, yeah, sure. Sure, I'll do that. Why did he decide to take two wives? We can't say we're certain We can't read Jacob's mind. But we do have the detail from this lesson that Rachel was lovely in form. And so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. I don't know. I think it would take a. Sur- I don't know many guys who would say I worked seven years and it felt like a few days. Like I'm sorry, ladies. Like that's the, like we love you and all, but like seven years and it felt like a few days. Like that's a big statement to make. Man, this guy was all in, passionate for her. And so it seems pretty likely that what drove his choice is like sure, yeah, give me Rachel in addition to Leah, is his personal passion or desire for her. You're just so passionate for her. He just desired her so much that, yeah, if I can just have Rachel too, let's do that. Okay. Now, there may have been other things. Again, we're not reading Jacob's mind. We, 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 don't, I, we want to be always be careful to designate between what sp- Scripture specifically says and what Scripture gives us the opportunity to ponder. This is an opportunity to ponder aspect. But we do see here with Jacob someone who is passionate and and has this desire. And is that guiding his compass? Quite possibly. But is this what should have happened? It's pretty simple to say okay, Laban should not have deceived Jacob. It's not good. But when you think about Jacob, this well known figure in Scripture, what should have he done in this moment after now marrying Leah? Where do we look for what he should have done? The source we need to look to in order to calibrate our compass is we got to go to the word that is spoken by God himself. What does God speak to this situation? How does God help us understand what should happen? Well, one thing we see in the Old Testament, and people will often comment, they'll say, well, there's polygamy all over in the Old Testament. And there is, but one of the things that the way the biblical narrative works is that it often doesn't, within a story, stop and say, this happened, by the way, that was wrong. The way it works is that it often will tell you something that happened and then show you through the narrative that it did not work well. And one of the things that you see in the narrative here in Genesis is that what happened to Leah? She was not loved. And you end up getting this big rivalry between Leah and Rachel and then there's a rivalry where they're like competing with each other by who can have more babies for Jacob. And then one ends up giving her servant girl, will now have a baby with my servant. Well, okay, she did that and I'll have a baby with my servant. And it becomes this ugly mess. The narrative in and of itself shows us this is a bad idea. But then also, in the New Testament, we have what we read from the words of Jesus. And where does Jesus take it back? what where where does he do? When people asked him about marriage and asked him about divorce, Jesus takes us back to the beginning. And he says, At the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Two, one. Not one marrying two. So when you look at scripture, should Jacob have taken Rachel also? The answer is no. Biblically, that was not the right move. What was guiding Jacob in this decision process? What was guiding what we have here? Was it scripture? Was it God's truth? Or was it the norm of the time? It was not uncommon for people to take multiple wives. Okay, Sure. His desire to fix things. All right, I have a problem. I really wanted Rachel. Laban gave me Leah. Okay, I'll just take Rachel too. This is how I'm going to fix it. I really, really want her. Okay, so I'll go ahead and do it. What was guiding her? Was it, was it God's word or was it these other things? And we can see it appears to be these, these other things that were guiding Jacob's response here. But now here's the really tough question. What would have been the better thing? What would have been the more God-pleasing thing for Jacob to do? Given this current situation. Okay, so if Jacob is not supposed to take two wives, and Laban deceived him and gave him the wrong woman, we might be inclined to say that the better option then would have been to divorce or annul Leah and then marry Rachel. But again, let's let God's word word speak to this. Again, in Matthew 19, Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, so that would be sexual relations with someone outside of the marriage and marries another woman commits adultery so that's the one one reason for divorce that Jesus gives Paul talks about how a wife must not separate from her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife if there is a reason where they need to be separated okay that may happen because sinful people sometimes can't be together but then they should remain unmarried. And then he goes on and he does add an expansion. However, if there is a situation where an unbeliever leaves, then you're not bound in that situation because they've deserted the marriage. These are the two situations that God's word says divorce is acceptable. Not ideal, but acceptable. So with that in mind, should Jacob have divorced or annulled with Leah, what does scripture say? No, he should have stayed simply married to Leah. Yes, he was deceived. Was the deception right? No, that was wrong. But should he have taken a second wife? No. And should he be divorced or or annulled or however you want to refer to it? No. Scripturally speaking. This is a hard lesson. It's it's a challenging thing to consider. If you're feeling like, really, I feel uncomfortable with that, I get it. I've felt uncomfortable with it this week. Am I going to get up and say, Jacob really should have just stayed married to Leah? I don't see any direction from God's word to say otherwise. Now part of the reason why I'm uncomfortable is I realize that this message, what I just said, could be easily twisted and misapplied. So I need to make a couple of clarifications, just in case you or anyone in your life maybe has heard someone misapply this idea. I do not want anyone to go, "Okay, this means that I don't have to be honest when I enter a marriage or into a rela- relationship. Let's just get married and then I can be honest about my other stuff later. It's not what this is saying. And, and this is the one I think in many ways I'm most concerned about is, is I've heard too many horror stories of someone like a, hus- a, a man who seemed super nice and then they got married and became abusive. And I would never want a woman to say, well, I'm, I'm stuck in this. Remember, Malicious desertion causing separation, one of the ways that we see that happen is an abusive relationship. So if that starts happening, seek help and tell that person to seek help, you're not stuck in that situation. Okay? I really just want to clarify that, lay that out there. Deception before a marriage, deception after a marriage, or once a marriage has begun, not acceptable. And if someone becomes and it becomes hurtful and painful in that way where there's that situation, that abuse situation. Seek help is not just say, all right, you're stuck. But even with those clarifications in mind, it still kind of feels uncomfortable to say, all right, Jacob should just marry Leah. At least it did for me. And so the question I was asking myself this week, and, and if you are feeling uncomfortable with me, the question we need to ask ourselves is, Why? Why does it make us uncomfortable? And we need to ask ourselves that question, why, remembering that the thing that broke this world was when people did what looked good to them, rather than trusting God. And we need to remember that the things that are broken about this world often don't look broken. And then perhaps, if that's the case, if the things that don't look broken actually are broken, does that then mean that the things that are good maybe will sometimes look broken to us or be uncomfortable to us? Could we potentially feel uncomfortable about this lesson? Not because God's Word has given us a reason to be uncomfortable with. The idea of Jacob simply just staying married with Leah. Or is it because of these things? Are we influenced by our current cultural norm, misguided desires to fix things, or personal passion or desire? When I talk about our current cultural norm, we might think right away to like, all the things that are clearly sinful out there. Don't go there at first. I want to encourage you to think about a current cultural norm that is not inherently sinful. But when it becomes such a norm, it, beca- it, it really affects what we think about. The current cultural norm in Laban's day was that the older daughter gets married before the younger daughter. That's not wrong. Right? That's not wrong at all. But when that norm then dictates your actions, it can become a problem. One of the things, with the cur- one of the current cultural norms in our world that it's not necessarily wrong in our culture is how we go about finding a marriage partner. Like, we have, we, we grew up on, and I can say we all, regardless of how old we are, because we've just for generations now had these stories of, like, you know, there's, like, a princess, but she really doesn't want to marry the other prince, and, but then she finds the love of her life, and then people realize, oh, they should marry their love. And they do, so. like, that's, we were brought up on these stories, right? And in our culture, like, It's the big thing is you need to find that you need to fall in love and then you want to have this romantic fairy tale wedding and then live forever happily ever after. And you could even make the case that one of the things that our world values so much is romantic love. How many, every, so many movies, songs, what are they about? Romantic love, right? That's a cultural norm that's today in our culture. Throughout much of history, how did a marriage happen? A dad and a dad talk to people they may not even meet ahead of time. And they get married. I'm not saying that's the best way. I'm just saying that in our cultural setting, what happens here in this lesson is so foreign. And it may actually be our cultural context that is making us more uncomfortable than God's word. If you grew up in a world where you may not even meet your spouse before you get married, Then what happens here and saying, well, you know what, Jacob should just stay married to Leah, is it so crazy to ask? Maybe not as much. And by the way, it's interesting, there are parts of the world today where people still do arranged marriages. Again, I'm not saying this is their best way. I had a classmate in seminary, had an arranged marriage, and they were so happy. It's amazing. The whole process of dating is not the only way to a wonderful marriage. Okay, so that's just, that's, that's just a cultural norm that can affect what we do. But then also, our misguided desire to fix things. When, when we see something, okay, we see that, that Jacob here was, was tricked. Our, our natural instinct is like to do like Eve and take the fruit and, and try to get wisdom our own. We try to fix things our own way. We come to our own solutions. And is it because we look at this and we're like, all right, something seems wrong and we want to fix it? And so saying, well, he should just stay married here seems like we're not fixing it. Maybe that's part of what's happening. The other thing that can really be affecting us today, and we just need to be so aware of it, is you can make the case that the greatest sin to our culture today, that our culture would say is the worst thing you could do, is to, to, to tell someone they should not do whatever makes them feel happy. Right? That's like like that scene. Like if you say like there's there's you know what you I know you want to do that, but that you shouldn't. Our world is like, how dare you do that? How could you tell someone not to do what makes them feel happy? And it's just everywhere. Do you do what makes you feel happy. So when you look at this, we're like, okay, honor God rather than just do what makes you feel happy, that's that's uncomfortable. That's a hard thing. It's so helpful for us or important for us to consider this lesson today and what's going on with Jacob because while God willing you're never going to have an experience where someone in your life thinks they're marrying one person and then there's a switch overnight and they marry somebody else. There are plenty of ways where we are in situations where we will very much be pushed and our compass may tell us to do something and it may be actually these things influencing us rather than what God says. You do hear things within marriages today that are not quite this situation but where someone will say the person I married is not this person, they've changed. And we fell out of love. And we need to ask ourselves, and for many people they'll say, and that's why we got divorced. Does Scripture say that's a reason? Or does our cultural norm, our desire to fix things, or our personal desire say that's the reason? It can be before people get married, where two people have been dating for a long time, and then they they reason that certain behaviors are acceptable. And are those behaviors acceptable because God says, yeah, it's fine? Or is it because it's the cultural norm? It's our desire to fix things and this is just what I want. There's been a major change in our Western culture and the view on marriage. God designed it to be between man and woman, man and woman, not women. (laughs) Between a man and a woman. And we're especially reminded in the month of June just how much that viewpoint has changed. And we might look and people are in many ways applauding that, but we have to ask, is that God's design? Or are people shifting views because of the cultural norm? Our desire to fix things, we see, two, we see people longing to be in love. Well, isn't the, 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 the answer then to say, go ahead and, be, and live that way? Are we influenced by the world saying that the greatest thing you need to do is make you feel happy? Is that, are those the things influencing us instead of God's word? And it's not just marriage. It could be any, any, norm, like any situation where there's a potential problem. And where we look at it and we go, what do we do in this situation? Somebody's wronged you? Are you going to respond in a way that reflects scripture? Or are you going to respond in a way that culture says, well, they've wronged you? It makes sense for you to respond this way. To act this way. When you think about your goals and your dreams for life, are you letting God direct how you pursue those? Or are you following the industry standard, which may not always be honest, and God-fearing, and loving to other people? There's so many ways this plays out. And if you're like me, you recognize that, man, so often my compass has been off. But that's why it's. Such a comfort to remember that we have a Savior Jesus who had a perfect compass, a compass where he always listened to the words of his Father. The word obey, in scripture, it's the idea of hearing that turns into action. And so he listened to the words of his Father and did exactly what his Father did or said. And what did his father say? He said, I want you to join in a marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, there's this section that talks about marriage, and it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. When you think about Christ loving all of us Christians, it's the idea of a husband and a wife. And when you think about the marriage between Christ and the church, God called his son, God the son chose to marry people who were unfaithful to him. Jesus, when he looks at us, he says, I know you've turned away from me, and I'm running after you, and I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to die for you to pay for you. Could you get a more counter-our-cultural-norm love than the love of Jesus? Can you get a more counter-the-way-we-try-to-fix-things approach than laying down your life and dying for someone who has turned away from you? Can you get a more selfless approach that goes totally counter to, I need to just do whatever makes me happy? What did Jesus do? I'm laying down my life for you. But this is what we have. We have a savior who listened to his father, who said, I'm coming running after you. He went and came into this world and he took your sin and mine, all the ways that we follow our own compass, and he died for them, he paid for them, he rose again so you can know you are loved, you are forgiven, You are right with God, you are restored, and you are united with Him in this life, walking through this life, until someday there's the marriage celebration at the resurrection. This is the love of Jesus. This is what a compass directed by God looks like. This is what a calibrated compass looks like, and this is a calibrated compass that changes our eternity and changes our lives and that we can embrace to be part of what God is doing in this world. When I talk about what God is doing in this world and how we can embrace that, one of the things I love about Jacob's story, and when you look at Jacob, like, there's so many things that Jacob does wrong when you read his story, and yet God goes with him. After this whole event with Leah and Rachel, you have this thing where Jacob's actually going back, and he's going to see Esau, his brother, and he's terrified because uh, he's, you know, His brother wanted to kill him, right? And during the night, God shows up in the form of a man and wrestles with Jacob. It's this crazy story. And when Jacob and God wrestle, God actually gives him a new name and names him Israel. The name of God's people comes from the name God gave this man. And by the way, the name Israel means wrestles with God. I don't know if we we embrace enough that part of our life with God is going to be a constant wrestling. Like, wait. That just doesn't fit with what makes sense in my head. But God, I'm going with you. And so Israel is just wrestling with God. And God, can you be more set apart to be part of God's plan than to have your name be Israel? But that's the grace of God. And God, in that same way, he, he sets us apart now that we can embrace. Embrace his direction for our lives. Rather than just following the norms or doing going alongside of our misguided attempts to fix things, or just just doing what makes us feel good. What can direct our lives? Again, if you're taking notes, you've got this kind of blank compass here and you can write God's Word on it. And I put a few areas our categories of our lives where we can think about what would God's Word speak to these areas of my lives. If you embrace what God's Word speaks to these areas in your lives, it may go very much against what makes you comfortable, And it may be very different than what people around you act, but this is the way the calibrated compass is what changes the world. It's what really sets us apart as Christians. So let's think about some of these areas. And there's plenty of space in your worship folder, so I put general categories. Maybe you want to write a specific. When you just want something, when you say, I just want something so much, ask yourself, are my actions as a result based on the cultural norm, my desire to fix things, or are they based on God's word? What does God's word say about what I am desiring right now? Think about something you really have wanted, whether it be a relationship or goal or whatever it may be. So that's the kind of the second one I put up here is goals and ambitions. When it comes to the goals, the things that you want to do with your life, what does God's word speak to this, to my approach Am I going to act in a way that is just what's going on and that's acceptable in the culture around me? Am I going to act in a way that God says? Think about your relationships or the relationships of people around you. There might be some things that people in our culture say, this is good, this is fine, this is normal, but does God say it? It might look good to you, but does it look good to God? Look to what God says about those times when you have been hurt. How do you respond in those moments? Our world might say to just shut those people out. You have a right to be angry. But is that what God says? Does God say there's a better path and it's forgiveness and it's reconciliation, it's path to the cross. What does God's word say to those moments? What does God's word say as we try to navigate our social slash political environment? I, it just makes me, I feel, I even hate saying the word political in church, and I'm not going to go any further than any specific political thing. My point is just we have to navigate this culture, this environment, right? And you might think right away of navigating the environment that is very counter to the Christian viewpoint, and that's part of it. But also, sometimes when we are surrounded by people that think mostly like us, and then that group starts to veer from God's word, we may just go along with it because our guard is down. So don't just think about those who are clearly opposing God's word. Always be tuned in. Is this action or what's being said in my friend group right now? Is this reflecting God or is this reflecting the norm of this group And our own attempt to fix things? And then the final area that I just wanted us to think about is when God's ways are difficult to understand. When we look at what God says for our world and it's like, man, God, I I know your word says that, but I just don't get why. Why does your word say that? Why would it be better for Jacob to just marry? In those moments, let God speak into it instead of the norm. When God's word is hard to wrap our heads around, we can lean in and trust God and let him show us a different way, a better way. Which, if you really think about it, is hard to do, but it makes sense. Isn't it interesting? We want, this world is a, uh, we look around, this world is broken, right? And we want something better, but then when God gives us something that is different than the world around us, what is our response? Often we're like, ah, God, why do you, I don't get it, why do you want me to do that? Well, If it's broken and you want something better, doesn't it make sense to do something different? God's word is different for a reason, because it's better. God knows how he designed marriage. God knows how he designed people. God knows how he designed this world. And we can trust him. We can look to the one who not only created us, but sent his son Jesus into this world to lay his life down and die for us. To set us right. It's a love that is different. It's a love that doesn't fit with the way the world approaches things today. But it's a love that gives us life with him forever. And it's a love that can change and guide our lives today. May the spirit
1: calibrate your compass today and going forward.